As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. When it comes to innocence... Do you like parades? Yeah. Olivia Stovers... Not anymore. ...took an unexpected hit. When a man accused of violent crime after violent crime bought his freedom. There were girls scattered throughout the street and then people tending to them. For $1,000. Obviously what, what happened with Mr. Brooks was a huge injustice. This week on Open Record. Wisconsin has a bail problem. Wisconsin lawmakers put the bail system on trial. Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Brian Paulson, and I am joined this week by Open Record's executive producer, Sarah Smith. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Brian. It's great to be here. All right, so we are recording this episode on Thursday, February 17th. I don't know how it is already uh, more than halfway through February, but I guess that means we're closer to spring, right? Like, that's the way I'm looking at this right now. We are closer to spring. I keep thinking that too, and we keep kind of dodging these snow <laughs> events, so I'm I'm good with how, how the winter has progressed. Speaking of things going quickly, it is already three months, or this coming Monday will mark, three months since the tragic Waukesha Christmas Parade, which actually took place just before Thanksgiving. It was Sunday, November 21st, and Sarah, I think a lot of us remember what we were doing when we first heard about this, the car plowing through the parade, running over children and adults. It was a Sunday afternoon... The news is breaking that afternoon and evening. Do you remember how you heard about it and and what you were doing, sort of what was going through your mind? I I do. um, So I can't remember if I had Twitter open or um, if I just, you know, on Sundays and during the weekend, I happen to check work email every once in a while just to kind of weed out what I might not need for the week and stuff. And I remember seeing you know, I think it was tweets about, you know, that a car had barreled through and it's an event and it's a thing. And I'm like, Waukesha Parade. And I remember that in years past, my girlfriend and her family would attend the Waukesha Christmas Parade. And so my first thought was, oh my gosh, you know, like what's going on? And so I immediately texted her and I said, I'm hearing about this. I don't know if it's real or if it's just kind of reports or what happened. Are you okay? And the minutes following that felt like hours, you know, I I think it was probably 20 minutes after I had texted her. Um, But she and her family were okay. But she was like, oh, my gosh, like this was something like I had never seen before. So, yeah, it just and then obviously the news after then it was like I was monitoring email and messages at work and stuff like that. So I certainly remember and the date will never leave my brain either. It's a day after my birthday. Um, and we had just actually, as a as a newsroom, finished up the news cycle of the Rittenhouse verdict and coverage on the 19th. And so, you know, we as a newsroom were like, okay, you know, 
we wrap that up that you know that's on to the next and then two days later this happened I, I remember because of the timing of it being a Sunday afternoon you know I've, I'm doing things around the house kids making dinner whatever it might be and and getting the text notifications or the the you know, Facebook notifications whatever it is from the Fox 6 app and seeing that uh, you know someone drove through this Christmas parade and my first thought was what do you mean drove through it like, I, it didn't make sense at first. Like, what does that mean? Like, did one of the floats, you know, go too fast? What happened? And as soon as I realized, no, someone intentionally drove through the parade, immediately you start to make the connection. Well, I mean, there would have to be a lot of people hurt. People are walking in a parade. If a car drives through, you have nowhere to go. There have got to be people who are dead. But we didn't know right away. Was anyone dead? And in the news business, obviously, unfortunately, we often sort of judge just how severe a situation is by the number of casualties and, and fatalities. And we didn't know early on, but we knew very quickly it was bad. And I remember telling my wife, I, I've got to go downstairs, which is where my home office is now. I said, I, I've got to start just doing what I can. And I don't know what that is. At that point, I didn't know what that would be. We didn't know who it was. We didn't know what happened. But I said, i, I got to see if I can help. And it turned out we had gotten... Uh, fairly quickly, the suspect's name was leaking out, not only through our own sources, but all over social media. People, And this is largely because the name was, uh, people were checking police scanners, and the name was broadcast over the police scanner that they had a suspect uh, by the name of Daryl Brooks. And we started finding out everything we could. And I remember, I think we've talked about this on the podcast before, but I remember uh, the moment I checked his name and saw not only did he have this long criminal record, uh, which I think I expected to find, but when I saw my wife was sitting next to me, kind of being my co-investigator, and I saw that he had just been released from jail. And at that time, what it said on CCAP was November 19th. So it would have been two days earlier. We found out later it was actually a few days before that. But I looked at her and I said, this guy just got out of jail two days ago. This is going to be bad. And so the rest of that night was working on finding all about Daryl Brooks' criminal history. The next morning, I was the first person at the Milwaukee County Courthouse to go pull the physical files so I could see what was in them and what he had been accused of doing and convicted of doing in the past. And we know now, of course, he had just been released from jail. We know now, of course, that what he was released for was an incident where he's accused of using the same SUV to run over his ex-girlfriend, in this domestic incident, we know that at that time he was out on bond for a shooting from the year before where he shot a bullet at his nephew who's pulling out of his driveway. So we have reported extensively about that and also what happened after the parade, which was Milwaukee County DA John Chisholm coming out on Monday, the next day, and saying, yeah, that $1,000 bail he got out on, that was too low. Inappropriate. Shouldn't have done it. And a few weeks, a few days after that, he explained that it was an overworked assistant DA who was focused on other things. She had a trial and she just made a mistake. So that all set off the push and it sets the scene for our topic today, which is it got people talking about, well, why did he get out on a thousand dollars bail? And if he did, there's something wrong, something broken with our pretrial release system. And that's now where the focus is really turned. So then kind of before we get to that, this, you know, you've been digging a lot into bail reform and you have been for months now, you know, kind of since this happened. Um, and and again, we, we bring it up in a story that aired last night on Fox 6 um, about bail reform. So in that story, you featured an eight-year-old girl 
um, by the name of Olivia Stover, and she was actually hurt in the parade. Um, let's talk about her for a little bit. She, if, if you go back and watch the video and the story, she is looking like the sweetest girl who has a personality the size of Texas. It's interesting in the news business when you're sent, or you send yourself in this case, to go interview a child, because children can be amazing or they can be really, really difficult to pry anything out of. There's some, no matter how you phrase your questions, you're going to get one word answers. You're going to get someone who's very shy and hides behind a parent. And in this case, it's a very sensitive situation because this is someone who was traumatized, injured, scarred for life, not just physically, but obviously emotionally. The, the trauma is going to be there forever. So you want to be careful about how you approach that. And I didn't know who we were going to meet. I knew that the parents uh, were eager to to talk about this and to, you know, they they were happy to share their story and their daughter's journey. We knew she was already home from the hospital. So, OK, let, let, let's go do this. And when we walked in the front door, I'm greeted at the door by a dog. Uh, uh, I think it was a black lab. I can't recall, but it may be black lab mix. Um, very friendly dog kind of howling at me and just like excited that there's someone there. And then this face pops out and it's. It's Olivia. And she, from that moment, was the definition of energy. She was just bubbly and excited and interesting and sarcastic. And she made faces and she constantly danced around with a boot on her right ankle. So she's still recovering physically. But it's like, you know, if your kids are hurt and you're like, no, 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 you need to rest that. And they go, never mind, I'm going to bounce off the walls. She was bouncing off the walls. I had no trouble getting Olivia to talk. She wanted to tell me about everything. Um, what was interesting, though, is when we sat down to do the formal interview, she sat between her parents and they talked a lot about their memories because she doesn't remember what happened, thankfully. She doesn't. She was marching in the parade with her uh, Waukesha Extreme dance team teammates and singing Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree or dancing to Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree and just enjoying it. She's done parades before. She'd done Christmas. She'd done Fourth of July a number of times. And she loved parades. So she was having a good time, and she doesn't remember what happened after that. But as she sat there on the couch, she's hearing her parents describe their experience of what happened. And and I, I was watching her eyes because this bubbly, vivacious, talkative, chatty little girl looked uncomfortable. And I, I asked her, I, what is it like for you to hear them talk about this if you don't remember what happened? And if you watch the story, you heard her say, oh, I hate it. And she meant it. And she also said, you know, that, that you said, so you, oh, you like parades? And she first, at first, just uh, the, the instinct, she was like, yes, well, not anymore, you know, like you saw that thousand yard stare when she realized yes. what she had just said and then said, yeah, not, not yep. anymore. Well, and her mom, her mom was walking with her at the time of the parade. And her mom, uh, Jennifer Stover, uh, you know, we as always, we can't share all of this stuff in the in the stories. So that's why I love the podcast. But um, she was was talking about walking along in the parade and sort of her, her experience of it all. And she loved doing the parades, too. She's out there handing out candy. And she's going back to the truck they have with them to get more candy. And, and as she's crossing back across, she's, you know, sort of notices some commotion behind them, turns around, and then she was hit as well. So she's knocked to the ground, thankfully not seriously hurt. But imagine as a parent, your child, you know your child was nearby. She gets up and realizes, I, I have to find my daughter. Where's Livy? And she's 
you know, panicking, yelling, where's Livy? Does anybody know where Livy is? And there were children scattered all over the ground, people huddling around them, trying to tend to them, um, find out if they were okay, were they wounded, stabilize them, wait for emergency help to arrive. And so you can only imagine that I just, I can't even imagine what that moment was like for the mom. But um, I, I think probably if you, if you ask them now, they're grateful that Olivia wasn't conscious for all of this. Um, but certainly it was an extremely traumatic situation for the parents. You know, obviously with the mom walking in the parade and Olivia injured among dozens um, and her dad, you know, so kind of where, where do they stand on maybe what they want to see happen with all of this? Because obviously they're, you know, old enough where they're following along with the court proceedings and know the background of the suspect and stuff. So, so where do they stand on all of that? Well, I, and that's why I wanted to interview Olivia and her parents for the story is a reminder that in the end, and there's going to be a lot of politics that get involved in this and what's the right system and how do we fix this or that, or is this an overreaction, that sort of thing. In the end, whatever the people in charge, the people in authority come up with is about making sure families like this don't go through what they did that day, right? Those, they are clearly innocent victims. They did nothing wrong. They were in a parade. This is an eight-year-old girl dancing with her friends. She is scarred for life. So, so they are victims. They, their focus for the last three months has been, let's get our daughter well. Let's get back to, try to get her back to maybe being able to dance again and, and dealing with whatever sort of emotional trauma they're still struggling with from what happened. This was the first opportunity uh, really for them to consider the question of how do you keep this from happening? What's the right policy? And I remember asking Nick Stover, the father, in this interview, there's all these different proposals out there, which we're going to talk about in a moment. What do you think's best? Do you have something you really want to rally behind? And his response was, well, clearly this was an injustice. And of course, something needs to be done, but I need to know more. I don't know yet what the right approach is. Now, he did say, I don't think it would take that much. I think a little time and a little research, and I'm going to have a pretty strong opinion. But at that moment, and we did this interview a couple of weeks ago, at that moment, they still don't know enough to say, this is what needs to change. What's clear is they say, he shouldn't have been out based on what they know, and something needs to change. And that's where lawmakers are right now, is they're still in the phase of something, but of course, the devil's in the details, what? What needs to change and, and how do we go about that? Well, and I think, you know, the word gets thrown around a lot, but I think maybe there's some people that don't know what it is, what it does, and the implications of it. So let's talk about bail. What is it? Well, it is a term that's used pretty pretty openly. Uh, we talk about it in news stories all the time that so-and-so was released on $1,000 bail or $500 bail, or, or maybe it's a homicide uh, suspect who... Um, you know, they're, they're holding someone on a million dollars bail. What is bail? So what bail is, according to the law and according to the Wisconsin Constitution, is simply a set of conditions that say, while we go through the, the process of a trial, building up to trial, the whole criminal justice process, we're going to let you out of jail with conditions. There are rules. Because remember, the, the sort of bedrock foundation of the criminal justice system in America and the U.S. Constitution is that you are innocent until you are proven guilty in a court of law. So before you've been tried, this isn't a sentence. This is, we've got to figure out sort of what to do with you. We got to make sure, number one, first and foremost, you show up for court. 
because if you take off and you run off to, you know, another country or another state, well, then the trial is, you know, pointless because at the end, what do we do with you? You're not here. So the point of bail is to set conditions to say, if we're going to let you out of jail, you've been arrested, we're going to let you out until your trial. But here's what you need to do. Number one, bail can be conditions that have nothing to do with money. It can be don't contact so-and-so. It can be no use of alcohol. It could be um, for someone accused, maybe it's in the case of, say, a professional, say a therapist who has done something inappropriate with patients, no doing therapy while you're out. Um, it could be, um, you know, all sorts of conditions that have you know, no use of illegal drugs, all sorts of things. But the most common condition of bail that we all hear about is a money deposit. So maybe it's 500 or 1,000 or 10,000 or a million dollars. But the idea is if you post that money, if you pay it up front, you'll get it back as long as you come to court. As long as you follow the rules, you'll get the money back. So it becomes an incentive. Hey, I don't want to skip town. They've got $5,000 of my money or my dad's money or my friend's money. And so it's an incentive to come back to court. The question is, how high should that bail be? And what's the purpose of it? Is the purpose just to make sure you come back to court? Or is there another purpose, which is also to say, if you're more dangerous, we're going to set bail higher and try to protect the community from you. In other words, is it a tool to keep people in jail rather than to give them incentive to come back when they're out? Well, and then why didn't it work with Brooks? I mean, he was obviously, you know, in custody and, you know, posted the bail. So so then what? Well, so that's where the sort of that's the question. I guess you could ask that question to a lot of different people and you might get different answers based on sort of their political view of the situation, because some would say the reason why it didn't work in the case of Daryl Brooks is his bail was set. And we know the D.A. has since admitted or acknowledged that he said it was inappropriately low. Well, what does that mean? Why was it inappropriate that it was a thousand dollars? What's wrong with that? What number should it have been? And if you say the question is that thousand dollars was really there in the under the Wisconsin Constitution, the purpose of that bail is to make sure you come back to court. Well, we don't know if Daryl Brooks, he, he may well have showed up for court. He may well have come right back for his hearing. So how can you say it didn't work? Well, there's another factor. And certainly while the Constitution says the purpose of money bail is solely to make sure someone comes back to court, prosecutors, judges, the general public, we've all long had an understanding that the secondary purpose of that bail is to protect the public from dangerous people. The more dangerous you are perceived to be, that higher that bail is. So you have to come up with more and more money. And therefore, there's more on the line for you to behave while you're out pre-trial. Um, that's the idea. In this case, this was someone who had been arrested for shooting at a relative. That's a pretty violent crime. Um, you know, essentially, it's attempting to murder someone. You're firing a bullet at them. So that he was charged with recklessly endangering safety. $500 bail on that one. And while he's out on that, he's arrested for attempting to run over his ex-girlfriend. And I think that gets lost in this a lot, is that this wasn't just $1,000 bail for a single case. It was 500 for one violent crime, then 1000 for a second violent crime. So two pending violent crimes, this is someone who the system has every reason to believe is in fact a grave danger to the public. And there was a pretrial risk assessment that was done that said exactly that, based on his criminal history, based on the nature of these recent allegations, based on his past uh, you know, activities when he was out on bail. 
this person is a danger to commit a new crime and likely a new violent crime. So why just $1,000? And that becomes the question. Should it have been set higher than 1000 The DA says, yes, it should have been. Why wasn't it? That's the politics part. Some would say it's because this DA, and we've heard from many Republican lawmakers who say it's because this DA wants to let everybody out of jail and he's got liberal viewpoints that he doesn't think people should be held on these high bonds. Um, others would say it's because uh, that's not what the system was created for, because bail isn't about protecting the public, that in fact they think we should have a different system called pretrial detention where people who are dangerous are held with no possibility of bail. It's interesting, Sarah, in this case, to point out that Daryl Brooks, even after the Waukesha parade, does have bail. He has $5 million bail. Now, it was set at $5 million because at the time there were five fatalities. We later learned of a sixth. But the idea being, well, that's so much money, he won't be able to get out of jail. But what if he could? What if there was a groundswell of support across the country and they crowdfunded a $5 million bail to get him out. Can you imagine Daryl Brooks getting out of jail now? Well, under the current system, for that amount of money, he could. And there are some who say that should never happen. Someone like that should be held with no possibility of bail. And then those who aren't a particular risk shouldn't have to worry about paying bail at all. They should just get out of jail for free until they've been tried. Because remember, they're presumed innocent. So that those are the differing viewpoints here. Some who think bail should be much higher for dangerous offenders and others who say they shouldn't get it at all. But we also should give people who aren't particularly dangerous the ability to get out without paying any money. So we talked about how, you know, there's kind of the differing viewpoints from both people and politicians. And obviously in the last, you know, we just talked about at the top of the podcast how we're at the, you know, middle to toward the end of February. But just in the last month and a half, there have been proposal after proposal in Madison that have to do with bail reform. And so what are some of those ideas? Are they similar to kind of what you've just been talking about? Like what what would these different proposals do for the system? So there is, of course, you, if you, you know your civics, your state government, we have an assembly and a Senate. It's like the House of Representatives and the Senate at the, the federal government level. So there are two chambers of the legislature. And there are bills, there are five bills in each of those chambers that have been introduced, but they're essentially mirror images of one another. So effectively, there are five proposals that have been made for dealing with bail. And then, you know, the mirror version from the assembly is also filed in the Senate. Um, one of them is a joint resolution, which this terminology becomes, what does that mean? How is a joint resolution different from a bill? Here's why it matters. And a, a joint resolution is a proposal to change the state's constitution, not just to change state law. That's a bigger deal because the constitution is the foundational document against which every law is judged. You often hear, well, that law is unconstitutional. When you have laws, the legislature can pass them, the governor can vote on them. But if they conflict with the constitution, the courts can throw them out. So the constitution's a big deal. And for 174 years, the Wisconsin constitution has said that bail is only money bail is only to be used to ensure someone comes back to court. Public safety is not a factor. Um, again, I said before that judges and prosecutors often do that, but it's sort of like they're doing it without really explicitly saying that's what they're doing. And there are a number of people who say in one of these proposals in particular who says that, that says we should change the Constitution to make it clear that judges can consider past criminal history, 
risk to public safety, and other factors that aren't just about making sure someone shows up for court. So that when a Daryl Brooks comes along and runs over his ex-girlfriend, allegedly, with an SUV while he's out on another case for, for shooting at his nephew, the courts can say, you know what? The, the Constitution allows me to do this. You are way too dangerous. I'm going to set your bail really high. Not a thousand, not ten thousand, maybe it's a hundred thousand. Who knows? But they want to change the Constitution. That's one proposal. Another approach comes from State Senator Julian Bradley, um, and he has two bills that deal with bail minimums, setting a $5,000 minimum bail if you are someone who is charged with a new crime who has previously been convicted of a felony. So you are accused of being a repeat offender. $5,000 minimum if that prior offense was bail jumping, $10,000 minimum if it was a prior felony. And that minimum essentially takes the discretion away from the judge. It says the starting point is 5000 or 10000 based on that past. You can go higher, but you can't go any lower. And Senator Bradley says, he looks at this and says, the system we have in place failed uh, because in spite of all the warning signs, Daryl Brooks got this $1,000 bail, should have been at least ten grand, if not more. In, in his words. So he doesn't want the courts to have that discretion. He doesn't want prosecutors like John Chisholm to have that discretion anymore. He wants to take that away at least at that minimum threshold and then let them debate what it should be above that. So those are two very different approaches. One is to say, let's give judges the ability to consider this and have discretion as to what to do. The other says, forget discretion. This is the minimum and, and nothing less can come of it. So all these bills, you know, no matter where kind of they fall on what they think should happen have come from Republican lawmakers. So then on the flip side of that, what are Democrats saying about all of this? Well, those bills that have been filed come from Republicans, but there is a Democrat in particular who has a proposal. He hasn't filed a bill yet, but uh, a Milwaukee Democrat named Evan Goyke, he's been in the assembly for quite some time. And he was also part of a 2018 study committee that actually looked at the bail system in Wisconsin and looked at the issue of bail reform. Long before there was a Waukesha parade incident, he was looking at this issue, and, and there were uh, people, stakeholders from all over, not just lawmakers, but judges and prosecutors and, and academics, others, who were looking at what we should do with the bail system in Wisconsin. And, and uh, Representative Goyke looks at this as, in a way, not being a red or blue issue, not being a Democrat or Republican issue, but being one where there needs to be some compromise. And, and his view of it is this. People who are dangerous, like Daryl Brooks, should be held pre-trial without any opportunity for bail. They're too dangerous. The assessment says so. It's an academic. It's a it's an evidence-based assessment. It says that person's too dangerous. We keep them without bail. But on the flip side, he says that you, you also have to say that someone who does not pose a risk based on these academic assessments, um, the, these evidence-based assessments, if they're not a risk, what's the point of bail? Let them out without bail. If they're later convicted, then sentence them. And if they're not, then fine. But in the meantime, they don't lose their jobs. They don't have trouble paying the rent. You know, they don't have these long-lasting impacts that can actually push them into further criminal acts because they're destitute and desperate. So he's saying, let the low-risk people out without bail and keep the dangerous ones in without bail. In other words, eliminate the cash bail system altogether. Goyke calls that a grand bargain. Because essentially you're saying, we agree the dangerous ones should be held, even though they're presumed innocent. They've got a record. They've got a track record. Let's hold them. 
but let's let everybody else out. And and obviously, in, in some circles, that idea on the other end of letting everybody else out is a controversial one because it comes down to the question, Sarah. The fundamental question then becomes, who decides who's dangerous and who decides who isn't? And I get the sense from the various lawmakers I've talked to, there's not a lot of agreement in the notion that there's a trustworthy system that can predict who's dangerous and who is not. This bail reform issue has been obviously come to the forefront in Wisconsin, you know, among lawmakers, among people that maybe didn't really know much about it or have now kind of a, a vested interest in it. Um, but like, is Wisconsin that much different than other states or other states, you know, are they kind of seeing the same issues or do they have some of the similar proposals or laws in well, place? Well, in a lot of ways, Wisconsin is dealing with things that other states have been dealing with all over the country uh, in that you're, you're, that question of who should be released and who shouldn't, who's too dangerous to be released. But, you know, is, is bail just affecting the poor more than anybody else? Because if you consider for a moment, $500 bail to one person may be nothing. It may be, sure, I can get $500 tomorrow. To another person, it may be so much that they're guaranteed to stay in jail until their trial, even if they are, in fact, innocent, even if they are later acquitted, um, that person's going to be stuck because they're poor. Those two people might have the exact same level of risk to the public, but one is poor, one isn't. Um, so there, the argument by some who oppose cash bail as a system is the idea that it really just punishes the poor but doesn't necessarily protect the public from dangerous people. We've seen examples of someone who was involved in a violent crime, got a $20,000 bail, posted it, and then got out and killed somebody. Um, so it happens. Someone with access to money can still pose a danger. Um, but, but getting back to your, your question, some states have taken action to eliminate or to minimize the use of cash bail. And, and we look at the state of New Jersey five years ago. Governor Chris Christie at the time pushed uh, the uh, elimination of cash bail in most felony cases, um, the, or uh, in, 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 in a, actually most cases. New York City, a couple of years later, followed suit by eliminating cash bail in most misdemeanor cases. And Illinois, our neighbors to the south, actually took the biggest step of all. They eliminated cash bail or voted to eliminate it altogether last year, although that doesn't take full effect until next year. And, and in the meantime, they're developing that pretrial detainment system where they will evaluate who's too dangerous to release. They'll keep them without bail. That grand bargain uh, that Representative Goyke talks about. That's what Illinois is set to do. And uh, obviously, eyes all around the nation are going to be on Illinois to see how that plays out. Um, if you look politically, obviously, New Jersey, New York, Illinois, those tend to be more liberal states politically. So there are certainly there, there's skepticism among a lot of conservatives in saying that's really just a system designed to let more people out of jail. And we're going to see a lot of dangerous people get out and, and harm the public. Obviously, others look at it and say this is a better system that relies less on money and more on risk. We'll have to see how that plays out. One big difference in Wisconsin compared to other states is that Wisconsin does not have bail bondsmen. I've had people ask me this as I've been reporting on these stories. Well, if it's $100,000 bail, they only have to post $10,000, right? Not in Wisconsin. In Wisconsin, you have to pay every penny of the cash bond amount. If it's $500, you pay $500. If it's $1,000, you pay $1,000. If it's a million, you've got to pay a million. In other states, there are professional bail bonds persons who, in fact, represent someone who has had bail assessed, and they will put up the money uh, and require the person who is the defendant to pay 10% of that amount. And the bail bondsman collects a percentage of that if the person shows up for court. And the idea behind that is the, the bail bonds companies then 
become the ones who are sort of responsible for making sure that you keep your act together pre-trial because they've got skin in the game. They've put up the money for you, and they're now essentially, in some ways, if you remember the, the, the TV show Dog the Bounty Hunter, um, Dog the Bounty Hunter was an enforcer of people who were out on bail bonds, making sure they were doing what they were supposed to do. He wasn't a cop. He wasn't with the courts. He was, and in his company, they were professional bail bonds people. So the point is that system is different from what we have in Wisconsin. And it actually, there's a reason that matters. Because in other states that have tried to eliminate cash bond, one of the biggest impediments has been the lobbyists from the bail bonds industry. Because it would wipe them out. And Wisconsin doesn't have that. So that's a big roadblock. And I haven't talked about that on the air. But Sarah, that's a big roadblock that Wisconsin doesn't have in the way of bail reform. Whatever that bail reform ultimately looks like, there are no lobbyists from the bail bonds industry to get involved here because they're already cut out of the process in Wisconsin. They're not a part of our system. One of those things where you kind of think about, it's like the domino effect. You know, you add something or take something away, obviously the domino falls, which then affects, you know, other agencies and groups and people. Um, So back to kind of the politics of it. So I'm not breaking news here. Governor Evers is a Democrat. So obviously all of these proposals so far that have been put, you know, up in Madison are Republican backed. So if they're all supported by Republicans, how does anything get past Governor Evers' desk? But typically when you're talking about uh, legislation, statutes, or, or, or bills that would change state statutes, yeah, they're, you know, Republicans may have control of the legislature, but they've got to come up with something that Governor Evers is going to sign unless they just plan to use that as sort of you know, political fuel to say, look what he wouldn't let through. But if they really want to get something done, typically they'd have to get the governor on board. In this case, and just the other day, was, it was I thought it was a remarkable statement. Uh, Republicans held a news conference to announce that they were about to vote in the state assembly on the joint resolution that would change the state constitution. And Senator Cindy, du- or, I'm sorry, Representative Cindy Duco of uh, Delafield, which is the and represents the western half of Waukesha County. Uh, she is the lead author of that legislation. And I asked her, well, how, what are you going to do to get the governor on board here? What are you, are you going to get Democrats on board? How do you get bipartisan support? And her response was, we don't need it. We can pass this without Democratic support. We'd like to have it, but we don't need it because a constitutional amendment doesn't go to the governor at all. In fact, what has to happen, and it's a challenging process, but a constitutional amendment has to pass both the Assembly and the Senate in two consecutive legislative sessions, so not just this year, but again next year when a new session starts. After that, it would then go to voters in Wisconsin in a statewide referendum. So Sarah, you and I and everybody else in the state would have a say on whether or not we think the Constitution should be amended. Governor Evers would have the same say as everybody else. He'd be one vote as a citizen of the state of Wisconsin, but he would not have veto power as the governor. So that's the one piece of legislation that doesn't have to go through the governor's office and Republicans say they can take it straight to voters. They're making, they've already taken a first big step toward that. It passed the state assembly um, on a vote of 69 to 21. All of the Republicans who voted, voted in favor of it. There were 13 Democrats who also voted in favor, including two from Milwaukee, representative Sylvia Ortiz Velez and representative Daniel Reamer. Um, There's another one from Wauwatosa, one from Whitefish Bay. So a number of Democrats joined Republicans in supporting this, there were, I think, 21 Democrats, maybe, who voted against it. I don't. I think that's right. It was 21. But bottom line, it got overwhelming support in the legislature because it's dominated by Republicans, and they even had some Democrats join in. 
Will that happen in the Senate as well? It seems like it's destined to go that way in the Senate, in which case this will come up again next year. And if they if the momentum is the same, if the breakdown is the same, if they get it done, eventually voters will have a say on this constitutional amendment. And that would happen. The earliest it could happen is April of 2023. It may take another year, depending on all this, how long all this develops. But you listening to this podcast, if you live in Wisconsin, you may have a say on this come as soon as April of next year. I do think that this, you know, in the last couple months here, um, you know, despite this tragedy, it really has opened, I think, a lot of people's eyes to kind of a system that's been in place for as long as it has um, and just kind of the implications, uh, you know, positive and negative of of what bail is in Wisconsin. Um, And I think a lot of people are going to be interested in how this all plays out. I definitely think there's widespread agreement that this was an example of a broken system. The question is, how do you fix that system? And that's always where it gets trickier, and that's always where politics become a big part of things. But when you have widespread agreement on a on what the problem is, that's a starting point. And obviously, this is the first of many, many discussions we'll be having about what lawmakers do with that system and what statewide voters do with that system in the coming months and years. So that's as good a time as any for us to go off the record. This is the part of the podcast where we get a little more casual, have a little bit of fun by answering a question for which we have not prepared. In this case, I'm the only one who hasn't prepared because, of course, executive (laughs) producer Sarah Smith is already here and she has this week's off the record question. So you know what's coming and I don't, but I will... I'll be as quick as I can off the cuff with this one. I like it. Okay. Today's off the record question is, name something in your house that makes a lot of noise. Oh, my gosh. Well, there's a lot of things, but it happens every time I'm on this podcast. I have my desk in the basement of our house, which was never intended to be an office, but, you know, the pandemic and blah, blah, blah. My wife already (laughs) works from home, so she has an office upstairs. We don't have two offices in this house. So I created an ad hoc office in the basement. It happens to be that it is placed within about three feet of a furnace vent in the ceiling that, and it's the winter right now, so the furnace kicks on a lot. And so it just happened as we were recording this podcast, I was sort of reading the intro uh uh, you know, comments that will be in the sort of edited intro that our uh, phenomenal editor Dave Machuda puts together. And I was halfway through them and the furnace shut off. So it went from really, really loud to really, really quiet. And so I had to start over again because I didn't want it to sound ridiculous. Um, but I think that's the thing that gets me. It's that. And then also, so you think, oh, well, in the spring, it'll be better then, right? In the summer, you won't have to deal with that. Except about five feet in another direction, I have a dehumidifier that is off right now, but I have to turn that on the rest of the year because our basement gets a lot of moisture in the and you don't want it to get moldy and, and musty down here. So that runs nonstop um, with a hose that goes right into the utility room and you know into the drain. So it's either the furnace or it's the the uh, the, the dehumidifier, but they both. Um, if you ever hear rushing air in the background of this podcast um it is uh, it is not the breeze blowing through my ears though some might suggest it it is either the furnace or the dehumidifier how about you that's uh those are both i i, I get that um so 
when we first bought our house years and years ago, um, my husband and I, we needed a, a new refrigerator or freezer thing. And, uh, you know, we looked up obviously, you know, reviews and stuff like that. And this, re this one we really loved, um, on paper, the, all the reviews said, ah, oh, the ice maker so loud. The ice maker is the loudest thing ever. And I was like, uh, how yeah, loud could it on. really be? It's an ice maker. It's an ice maker. Every time that thing drops the ice cubes into the tray, my heart stops a little bit because it's the loudest thing I've ever heard. And I love the fridge. It's lasted 11 years. Knock on wood. Is what? it the sound of the ice cubes like shooting out or is it the yes. motor? No, it's not the motor. I literally think they're like cannoning the ice <laughs> out of the trays when it's frozen. No, whatever whatever mechanism takes the ice and gets it into the bin to dispense, it is like clunk, 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 clunk. It's just like it's so loud. And if I'm anywhere within about 10, 15 feet of it, I'm like, oh, cha. it always kind of gives, you know, the heart, the old jitters for a minute. But I'm like, oh, it's just the ice maker. Okay. You know, so those reviews weren't wrong. It's funny, though, <laughs> you talk about appliance noises because I do think that's kind of a big thing. And, and I, in my in my last house, um, which uh, we moved out of in 2018, I had a dishwasher that was obnoxiously loud. And it was sort of an open air concept where the kitchen was open into the living room. So if you watch television with a dishwasher on, you had to crank the TV way up. That's that's our house right now, okay. yes. So now I, <laughs> I, now I live in a house that does not have the open air. We've got a wall between the kitchen and the, the living room. But in addition to that, the dishwasher is so quiet. I love it. It's magical. Now, I didn't buy this. It just happened to be the one that was here um, because I, I, you know, when it comes to shopping for appliances, I, you know, I would love to pay premium on things, but I never do because you're like, well, I could save a few hundred dollars. And what's a little noise? Like you said, right? Come on. How loud can the ice maker be? But uh, the previous homeowners had, had bought a, a tremendous dishwasher that is really nice and quiet. And it's right outside my wife's office. And she never complains about the noise of the dishwasher. The noise of the guy behind her who's like, you know, dumping dishes in the sink and trying to make his lunch, that's a little different story. But the dishwasher that's itself. That's a different story, but fine. she also paid premium for that too. Hey boy, <laughs> did she ever. Uh, for the rest of her life. Um, but <laughs> but but we, we just one last thing. I, I Talking about appliances, I recently bought a new microwave because we had a big beast of a machine that was rusting and it was, and I just thought it was getting gross. And so I bought a new microwave and... Um, I don't know why they haven't come up with more microwaves having the capability to silence the beeps. But when it's done with its cycle, these beeps are so loud, you think there's a truck outside dumping trash. Yes. Yes. Like, and then mine, I don't know, because yours is new, so it might do this. If I don't take the food out within, like, 40 seconds, it, like, starts to beep again at me. Hey. Like, I didn't know it was still in there. And I'm like, hello. Hey. Take the food out. Hey, yeah, you know, it's, it is, yeah. I, like, I'm like, I don't need you nagging me too, all right, microwave? <laughs> I've got enough nagging going on in this house as yeah. it is. Word. So, yeah, so, you know, um, shop around for silence if you can afford to pay the premium. If you have a topic you would like us to discuss on Open Record or an issue you think we should investigate, send us an email to fox6investigators at fox.com. Again, that is fox6investigators at fox.com. Sarah, thanks for coming on and being, uh, you know, the main interviewer today, really, uh, here on Open Record. It was uh, nice having you on before the Open Record segment. Duties as assigned. I love it. Thank you for having me. As always, thank you to the people who make this podcast possible, producer Pete, Dave Machuda, and of course, Sarah Smith. Please subscribe to Open Record if you haven't already. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. With that, I'm Brian Polson. We'll be back again 
next week. 